0: But before we get into the scriptures, I wanna ask you this question. Hands up if you know what this book is. Yes, fantastic. It's a book that I grew up with and the book is known as Where the Wild Things Are. It is a fictional classic, a book that was first banned in many libraries actually. The story follows a boy named Max who puts on a wolf costume one night and he then wreaks havoc In his home. He's then sent to his room without any supper, and as he's sent to his room, his room transforms into a magical jungle, and he finds himself on a boat travelling to an island where these wild things are. Not frightened by the creatures, Max declared to them, Let the rumpus start, the wild rumpus start, dancing in the moonlight with the wild things, something, however, happens. Max becomes homesick, and so he returns home, even though the wild things wanted him to stay. His room turns back to normal, and a hot supper is waiting for him. Like Max's magical world, we in fact live in a world full of wild things, crazy things. For there are many things and places on our planet that are chaotic, unpredictable, and simply hectic. Thunderstorms strike down trees and ignite bushfires. Volcanoes can abrupt without much notice and cover cities in ash like Pompeii. Asteroids can crash into our planet, destroying the terrain, leaving mighty scars on our planet. Glaciers can pierce holes in ships, causing them to sink in the ocean. We think of Titanic. Bears can smell us from miles away and hunt us down without mercy, especially if they have little cubs. The desert can also be terrifying, even though it's so beautiful, it can trick us and say there's an oasis up ahead, but it's not really there. It also has shifting sands and you can lose where you are. The world is a wild place, isn't it? It's a crazy place. It is a dangerous place. Australia has the I don't know how many, but many um, poisonous snakes. Some of the worst snakes in the world when it comes to threatening us. But who controls the wild? Who controls it? Who controls the dreadful hurricanes, the violent bushfires, the mighty mighty hurricanes? The answer is simple. God. It's a hard one to digest, but it's God. Before him we cry, what sheer power and majesty. When we gaze into the galaxies and see the dead planets and stars and the changing galaxies, it's always growing. We acknowledge our smallness in respect to his grandeur. It is then no surprise that Job says this, Can you raise your voice to the clouds? And cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? The answer is no. Only God is in control of the wild. If you open up Job 38 and going right through to 41, you see that He confuses our plans. God lets the seas burst open from the earth. He keeps storehouses of hail for war. He hunts down prey for the lioness. He enables the goat to grow strong in the wild. He commands the hawk to soar. He created the mighty behemoth, which some people believe is a hippo. Others believe is a dinosaur. And he created the dangerous Leviathan, a creature without fear. One of the deadliest creatures God created. And so my point here is the wild world is controlled by a wild God. God cannot be tamed or controlled. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God, is, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And the best expression of his wildness, I believe, is his relentless love. His relentless love. If God were not wild. He would leave us to our own devices. We would simply die in sin. We would get what we deserved, everlasting death. But since the ways of God are wild, unpredictable, outrageous, crazy, he enters into our human chaos in the flesh of a human being, pursues us with crazy love, and he offers us a second chance of life in, him, in himself through Jesus. He promises us hope beyond the grave, even though we don't deserve it. This is the scandal of grace. The love of God in Jesus is wild, shocking. Some say Scandalous. And this is why we're spending 12 weeks in the book of Hosea. The wild love of God is flowing through this book that God would commit himself eternally to a people even though they are full of the worst crimes against God. He has committed himself to the human race even though he don't deserve it. This is a wild, crazy love. As um, Francis Chan, I think he says, But before we dive into the book of Hosea, it would be good to gain our Hosea bearings. And we can gain these bearings in verses 1 to 2. So if you've got your Bibles there, have a look at Hosea verses 1 to 2. Um, Let me read. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Bere, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam. Son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife, which is someone who's immoral, and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest idolatry in departing from the Lord. We see six things here in this little introduction. One, Hosea was a prophet who received the very word of God, the Lord. Two, Hosea preached in the house of Israel, which is the northern tribes of Israel. In that time, the 8th century, um, there was two parts of God's people, the northern tribe tribe Israel and the southern tribe Judah. um, Hosea speaking to the northern tribe. Three, Hosea's ministry took place in the 8th century BC during the reign of Jeroboam II. Fourth, Hosea foresaw Israel's exile, judgment to Assyria, and witnessed their very destruction before his eyes. Hosea was the last prophet that God raised up to warn Israel of their evil ways. And six, Hosea was called to make known the sin of Israel, and also, I'll add there, the love of God. Um, and now, with these bearings in view, we turn to verse three to see the disloyalty of Israel displayed. And to illustrate the depth of Israel's disloyalty, Hosea was commanded by God to marry a promiscuous, immoral woman, Goma. The word pr- promiscuous refers to a woman who is sexually immoral. I love what John Calvin says because he makes us really cringe with this um, commentary. He says, The marriage would have exposed the prophet to the scorn of all. If he had entered into a brothel and taken himself a wife. It's outrageous. And this is exactly what happened. Hosea married Gomer, who some say is a harlot, a woman of social shame. Okay? It is meant to make us cringe. It's meant to make us cringe. Why would God make such a wild request to his loyal servant Hosea? Why? Why? Would he make him marry someone who's sexually immoral, who would probably not be faithful to him? Why? Well, the family of Hosea acted as a physical portrait to illustrate the wickedness of Israel and the shame that God experienced. Okay, does it make sense? I'll say that again. The family of Hosea acted as a physical portrait to illustrate to the people of God the wickedness of their nation and the shame that God experienced in light of their wickedness. In other words, Hosea embodied physically the faithful husband, God, and Gomer physically embodied the disloyal wife, Israel. But the social shock... Doesn't stop there. Hosea had three children with Gomer. And these three children were given three wild names. Look at verses four there. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call your firstborn Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I'll break Israel's Bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo Rumaha, for I'll no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. After she had weaned Lo Ruhama, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Ouch. Imagine that family walking around town with those names. And I actually want you to imagine that now. Imagine walking down the street of Scone and introducing your kids to your friends with your immoral wife. Imagine saying, this kid here, we'll point at you, Ethan, this is Bloodshed, my firstborn. He, he, his, he name, his name means God will destroy the upper hunter. G'day, Bloodshed. This is my daughter, Unloved. Her name means God will no longer forgive the upper hunter for their sins. And this is not my people. Hey, Jerry. Not my people. My youngest son, his name means God will no longer call the upper hunter his people. How would you react in that moment if you were introduced to a family like that? Would that shock you? People would think you're crazy to say the least. But why the weird names? Why? Well, here's the point. God wanted to shake, literally shake, the house of Israel out of their shame, out of their disgrace. He wanted them to return to him. Prophets were sent into the nation of Israel to warn them of the coming judgment so that they could at least respond and turn back. The wild love of God is thus on display through these social warnings. Like a warning road sign that says, stop it or cop it. And we see that all the time on the roads. Hosea's family was a a warning, a signpost that declared, turn or burn. Because that's what happened, they burn. I could imagine Hosea proclaiming, Assyria is coming. They will ignite us. Turn back to God before it is too late. Turn. Here's your chance to turn back to the God, your true husband, the one who loves you. One scholar says this, God was withdrawing his protection, mercy, and his own self from the shameful bond with Israel. All, and so, unquote, all Israel needed to do was turn back to God. Only then would they enjoy the blessings of life They just had to choose life. And so point two, God desired his people to be loyal. I think we can learn a lot about that in our context because this truth is true for us as well. We too must seek to be loyal to God. He still looks at sin as adultery, which is pretty intense to think about, a serious and disgusting breach of a love relationship. That's what sin is at its core. But there is a little problem in our culture. Sin has become a bit of a naughty word. One psychiatrist says this, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud, honourable word. He goes on to say, it was a strong word, but the word went away. Um, last century, C.S. Lewis, when he was doing a lecture, lecture, said the people who he's lecturing to had no real sense of sin. With the dis- disappearance of this sense of sin in our culture, it is no surprise to see its impact on the modern church. One sociologist analyzed 40 sermons on the prodigal son, and after reviewing them, she said, in effect, many pastors reduced the language of sin to make the story more palatable to modern ears. Another writer says, strong biblical words with sin have been removed from our vocab. People no longer commit adultery, they have an affair. Corporate officials don't steal anymore, they commit fraud. But it even gets worse. Many pastors, and this is from my own experience, not necessarily in the Anglican church because we confess our sins every week, but many um, people in the modern church don't even use the language of sin anymore. Ever. And so the reality of sin in the West is dying and therefore our view of God and his grace. This reason we must be cautioned whenever we actively ignore the presence of sin, we are in one sense choosing to turn our back on God depart from Christ. Like the prodigal son, we are choosing to turn our back on the father's love that is on offer for us. Whenever we are thankful, prideful, or judgmental, we are acting in the way of Goma, the promiscuous woman. Whenever we worship modern gods, our entertainment, our overindulgence, and work, we are participating in the religion of our culture. And many people say to me, Jesse, you're so religious. You go to church every Sunday. You're a minister, of course. And I say, man, I've been to your house. You have a whole room dedicated to the Newcastle Knights. You're religious. And sadly, what I'm seeing is that many people in our culture are selling their bodies, and I'm using that language purposefully, selling their bodies to the stadiums, the home entertainment system, and the workplace. And it's so hard to see. While enjoying good sport, food, and work has its place and should be enjoyed, without balance, these things can really wreck us. It can destroy our faith. Sin is a vicious force that often destroys cultures, disrupts families, and wrecks our relationship with God. Or, should I be more specific, Christ, who is our spiritual husband. Um, if you read Paul's letters to the apostles, sorry, Paul's letters to the churches, Jesus is, we have union with him, He is our spiritual husband. Um, we, when we sin and ignore sin's presence, it can really ruin that relationship. Sin remains a personal struggle for us all. And so if we love God and desire to please Him, we must de- declare war against it. I love what John, John Owen says, an English theologian from about um, 500 years back. He says, be killing sin before it be killing you. And I think he's right there. Paul the Apostle says, put to death whatever belongs to your sinful nature. And so there's that ongoing sanctification that um, Nate talked about last week. And so if you're struggling with alcohol, Join a support network. If you're overwhelmed with anxiety, create a rhythm of morning and evening prayer, which is really important. Dedicate yourself to prayer. If you're struggling with lust or similar affections, find someone who you trust and share that that battle with them. And that sharing will actually help you because they'll carry your burdens. If you're addicted to online shopping, limit your weekly credit card spending or just cut that card in half. <laughs> the loyalty loyalty flows from declaring war against our sin. We need to pursue loyalty, to pursue Christ and his way of life. And with this disloyalty in view, we now see the radical reversal in the book of Hosea, a glimpse of great hope, something that we've been building up towards already in this book, seeing that um, image of Hosea's, um, family, Let me read it, verse 10 and 11. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up of the land. For great will the day of Jezreel be. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. After hearing about the coming judgment, the change of language is shocking and breathtaking at the same time. Even though the the relationship between the house of Israel and God is broken, it was not yet ended fully. God will still make his promiscuous people into a great nation, sin and judgment are not the final word god will not give up on his people israel god will restore his people and make them one big family they will receive new names my people and my loved one they will be united under one universal king and they will spring up to new life we see so much great hope here in that little paragraph it's, and we learn this, God's committed to his people. It's it's a wild commitment, it's a wild love. And even though Israel was judged, even though they um, were broken, ignited by the Assyrians, God's commitment meant that he left a, a, some loyal survivors, we call them a remnant of Israel. They held on to the promise for hundreds of years. Then after 750 years, there was only One perfect survivor left, and his name is, anyone know? Jesus. Holding on to the promise of God, it took him to the cross of shame. Then he suffered for the adultery of Israel, and by extension, us. He suffered the judgment for our promiscuous lifestyle. Jesus died for us, but that was not the end. Three days later, we know he sprung up from the land. Jesus launched from the dust of the earth to new life. And this is really good news for us. Now we can experience and enjoy the love of God firsthand. Through the Spirit's power in softening our hearts, we can acknowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. By having faith in Jesus, the only faithful one, we are given the right to become children of God. His status as God's righteous servant becomes our own. In Jesus, our shame is forgotten, like totally forgotten, and replaced with glory. In Jesus, we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, known, embraced, and loved By the outrageous love of God. And it's outrageous because, as I've said earlier, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve this love, but God loves us anyway. The love of the Father is wild. And we can now enjoy this love as he's restored people. In fact, by faith in Jesus, the Father now looks at us and declares, You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Or as the father said to the prodigal son, this son of mine was dead and is now found. Or as John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Without this love of God, we are wretched. But God pursues us in Christ even though we don't deserve it. That's, is that that good news? That's good news. That's crazy love. God is wild. He offers us a second chance out of his sheer grace. This is the scandal of grace. And so I want to encourage you um, this day, this week, this lifetime, this eternity to enjoy this love of God. We can enjoy it by giving thanks and praise. We sing songs. We tr- We're not allowed to sing, but we reflect upon great praises. We can sing at home at least. We can sing about his daily mercies. We can relax in the presence of God without fear of judgment or death because we know that God is with us forever. We can meditate on the status of being a father's child. We can even imagine the father with his arms cuddling us, holding us close because we are now his children. We can talk directly with God and know that he hears our voice. I've found that many Christians feel as though that God doesn't hear. They say, I don't think my prayers are good enough to reach in the kingdom of heaven. If we are children, guess what? The father responds to us as um, his children. We are his children. He hears us. And so friends, I want to encourage you to enjoy this wild love of God. We have great assurance as Christians that God has pursued us in Christ. And so enjoy the wild love of God. That's the overarching point. That's the big take home for us today. Enjoy it. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we deserve death, but through your wild, scandalous, extravagant love, you sent your son to die for our sin and offered us new life once and for all. We are now your children, called into a life of steadfast loyalty. And so by your Spirit's power, enable us to live for your glory with loyalty and never lose sight of the wild depth of your grace. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to stand and celebrate this grace um, by listening to these lyrics.